below the valley of humiliation on his way through this depressing hollow Christian saw a fearful demon who was bearing down on him it was Apollyon terrified but determined Christian stood his ground as the towering monster roared at him where are you from the city of destruction was the pilgrim's reply. Then you're mine, for that place belongs to me, snarled the fiend. Why are you running away from me, your king? I found your service hard and your wages worse, answered Christian, for the wages of sin are death. Go back to your country, urged Apollyon, and I will see what can be done about your pay and conditions of service. But I have pledged my service to the Prince of Princes, the pilgrim point, pointed out. Well, then you have changed a bad situation for a worse one, stated his enemy. But it's not too late. Many who profess to serve this prince return to my service after time. You'd be well advised to do the same. No, answered Christian, for I far prefer his service and rewards, his servants and government his company and country for yours. Stop trying to persuade me to turn back, for I will follow my prince. And barely able to conceal his annoyance, Apollyon urged the pilgrim to reconsider. Just think of all his servants who come to bad ends. Your prince does nothing to avert these situations, he said. If he does not rescue them, it's to test their love, Christian countered. Nor is it true that his servants lives end in tragedy, for all of them will share the prince's glory when he and his angels return. Apollyon's next tactic was to catalog the pilgrim's failures. You almost choked in the slew of despond and would have tried wrong ways of being free of your burden, the accused Christian. You slept on the way and lost your precious scroll. You were terrified by lions and are entirely motivated by a desire of your own glory. Everything you say is true, and there's even more besides, admitted Christian. But I have repented of these sins and have obtained forgiveness for all my wrongdoings for the merciful prince whom I serve. No longer able to hide his true nature and purpose, Apollyon raged, I hate the prince, his laws, and people, and I have come to fight you. Beware, Christian warned him. I am on the king's highway, the way of holiness. But Apollyon swelled to his full size and straddled the path, hurling a flaming dart at Christian, who fended it off with his shield as he hastily drew his two-edged sword. For half a day they fought. It was a grisly battle. The foul fiend yelling and, and roaring peppered his opponents with fiery darts, and Christian, groaning and panting, defended himself with his shield as he cut and thrust with his attack sword, attacking sword. At one point, weakened by wounds on his head, hands, and feet, the pilgrim staggered backwards. Immediately, the scaly beast seized the chance to come to grips with his opponent. A fearful wrestling match ensued, and at last, Apollyon managed to bring Christian crashing to the ground with such force that the two-edged sword flew out of his hand, and then, sensing victory, Apollyon closed in for the kill. This is from a chapter in the book entitled The Pilgrim's Progress. I want to talk this morning to those of us who find ourselves in the valley of humiliation, in the valley of shadows. The valley where David accepted the challenge to confront the intimidating Goliath. The Goliath challenges in our lives come in all shapes and sizes. They're all intimidating. In my life, I've learned that Goliath often stares back at me when I look in the mirror. I know that there are some sitting in this congregation right now with deep feelings of despair. 
you've masked it really well. But in despair, indeed, you are. You're sitting. You're overwhelmed. You're defeated and perhaps numb. Some of you are even indifferent. You're just here because this is what you do week after week. I know that there are giants in your life that are overshadowing your life. And here's what I want to tell you. If you are one of these right now, you need to know this. God loves you more than you can ever imagine. God loves you more than you could ever imagine. God loves you more than you could ever imagine. If you're new today, I want you to know we've been going through the life of King David. And we've been talking about his faithfulness, his rise from being a shepherd boy to being the king. We've talked about his, his amazing ability to, to worship. We know him as the man after God's own heart. And yet, what we're going to talk about today right now is one of the darkest moments of David's life. An experience so dark, and yet God chose to write it down so that every single person throughout history can read about it. How would you like your sins to be public? In recent days, You've been listening to the news or reading the newspaper. Man after man after man after man. Men that we would never thought. We'd be like, really? Not, not that person. Not him. Accused of sexual misconduct. And we think it's shocking, but here's the truth. In a few months, maybe a year or two, we will have forgotten all about it. But David's story is written in the Bible. This is what I love about the Bible. What I love about the Bible is that it's not a book about perfect people doing perfect things all the time. The Bible is about imperfect people with a perfect God. Constantly doing all that he can, experimenting with how much grace it takes for us to experience salvation. And yet, as I read this, I think to myself, how could David have done this? How could he have allowed this to happen? I mean, it's one thing when someone brazenly rejects God. That's no big shock. But this is, this is David. This is a man after God's own heart. I've, I've, I've been reading about David all along. And just how amazing, as a little shepherd boy, just the way he guided the sheep. As a shepherd boy, as he, uh, 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 he asked God for strength so that he could beat a lion and, and, and destroy a bear. As a shepherd boy, able to do amazing things for the kingdom. As a young man, defeating this great giant called Goliath, so submitted to God's way that he would not in any way, shape, or form have anything to do with hurting Saul because he was God's anointed king. And even though it was his right, he waited 15 years to become king. He loved God so much that he wrote song after song after song. And when the ark was returned to Jerusalem, he broke out into a song and a dance. And he worshipped like, like we don't even know anything about. I mean, that's, that was just so free. So amazing. How can someone with such intimate connection with God experience such separation? Here's a question. Who in this room is so spiritual that you think this could never happen to you? Raise your hand. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't know about you. Uh, but 
the longer I am in the presence of Christ, the more I realize and I'm aware of my faults and my brokenness. You know what I'm talking about? So here's the good news. The good news is that you're in church. And church is that place where we reach, we reach out to the most fallen, junked up, messed up, mixed up, weak individuals. That we, that we just reach out to them, embrace them as you step through these doors and lead you to the foot of the cross where there is salvation. The most messed up, junked up, broken people. Look around you. <laughs> I mean, that's what we are. You do know this, right? So as we read this story, and for some of you, this all-familiar story, try not to be smug about it. I'm not trying to excuse this man in any way, shape, or form, but I do know this in my life. I am just as broken. And maybe my brokenness is shown in different ways. But I'm blessed enough that it will never be in the annuals of the Bible. How about you? So 2 Samuel chapter 11, let's go there. We're going to go right into the story. And if you have been following along, you know that, that this is David. This is, this is the guy who has had tremendous success, has been faithful to the end no matter what. We made clear of that last week. And he has been winning battle after battle after battle. I mean, he is an amazing statesman, a fantastic warrior. And he is just, he's doing great. And at this point in his life, he is at the pinnacle of success. And the very first words of 2 Samuel 11 immediately give us a hint of what the problem was. Don't you miss it. It says, in the spring, at the time when who? Kings go off to war. David, who is a king, sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Did you catch this? This is a time when kings are supposed to be where? Out to war. But no, David decides to send. Now here's what I do, just so you know. In my Bible, the word sent is underlined. In fact, watch how many times this word sent goes, goes, goes there that you want to underline, that you want to circle. Because I am convinced that sin will always send into motion forces that you cannot control. And the first sending is, is David sending Joab where he should have been going. I promise you I will not spend as much time with every single passage today because we will be here for a long, long time. And then Pastor Terrence's uh, prophecy will come true and I don't want to do that. But I don't want you to miss some important points here. This was a time when David was supposed to go to war. But David sends Joab and it says, uh, and they destroyed the Ammonites and the besieged Rab. They were doing good. But David, it says, but David, but David remained in Jerusalem. You see, sin just doesn't happen. There is something called a spiritual drift factor where we begin to just little by little just move towards this. You know, there's this wonderful quote from this book called The Steps to Christ. I love this. Where the author says that God loves us so much. And, he, and she says that if we do not resist this love, it's like, it's like a great loving vacuum cleaner sucking you in but you have to actually resist the love if we do not resist this love god can do great work in us so think about the level of resistance from this pulling power that david had to do 
as he spiritually drifted away from God. He doesn't even know it's happening. And the Bible says this. It says, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Now, yes, yes, it is a geographical place. In those days, kings and palaces lived usually on the second or third story. And they would have these doors that would open up to this roof place that was actually more like a room. I mean, it had tables and chairs, and it was really intense. So, yes, it's talking about that. But I also believe that there is nothing in the Bible that's there. It just happenstance. Have you ever been in a, in a situation in your life where you have walked on the roof of your house? You own the world. Everything is going great. You are popular. People are singing songs about you. I mean, you are doing fantastic. You are successful. You're making all the money you need to make. Your wife is happy. Right? You know what I'm talking about? It's just wonderful. And you're on the roof of your house. As I was walking in here, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but one of the moms was outside with her two children. And I, I thought they were coming in, so I kept it. She goes, oh, no, 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 we're just playing red light, green light. You know that game, right? Red light, green light? What happens when you go up to a red light? What's supposed to happen? Let me ask that. What's supposed to happen when you go up to a red light and a traffic? You stop. What happens if it's green? You, you go. In fact, somebody in front of you, the light's green and they're not going. What are you doing? Eh, come on, man. It's time to go, right? What happens when it's yellow? Ah, the most ambiguous of colors, isn't it? Some of you are going, speed up. Some of you are saying, well, no, no, you actually have to slow down. You pray for those who are speeding up. This was a yellow light moment for David. What he should have been, what he should have been doing instead of speeding up was slowing down. Is at the roof of his house, and it says this. One evening, David got up from the bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. By the way, the Bible ever, rarely ever uses the word very. And when it does, it means it. So... This woman was very beautiful, and she's going outside to bathe, which is what they did. I'm going to put up a quote by a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl, and it goes like this. Between stimulus and response, there is a what? Space. And in that space is our power to what? Choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. All of us have that space. What we do with that space whether we pray or don't pray, whether we invite God to help us make the right decision between stimulus and response, there's that space, and what we choose matters. Did you know that you have your own superpower? Did you know that God made you 
in such a wonderful way that he has given you the power to choose. How many of us squander that power? How many of us have been talked into by Satan to, to think that we are, don't have that power? I'm too weak. I can't do it. She's too beautiful. He's too handsome. It worked for Nancy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I wouldn't have said that if she hadn't laughed out loud right there. So that's my wife, for those of you who don't know her. So there was this space. The woman was very beautiful. And David, what? Sent. Did you catch that? And David sent, there it is again, someone to find out about her. Verse 3. And the man said, and I, I love these men. You find them all throughout the Bible. We don't know what their names are. We have no idea. But this guy is trying the best he can to keep David with integrity, right? And the man said, um, uh, is, isn't that Bathsheba? <coughs> the daughter of Iliam and the wife, <coughs> excuse me, Mr. King, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? I mean, I'm just saying. I'm just throwing that out there. You should know, right? I mean, I know you know. Because everybody knows Bathsheba. I mean, Uriah did good for himself. That's great, man. Most men marry up. That's the way it is. But David is the what now? He is the, the king. See, when power comes, it is easy to be good when you have no power. But when you have power, everything changes. And you think you're above the law. Then David what? Sent. Did you see that word again? Oh, man, I hope, I'm hoping you're getting to underline this word. I hope you go home and underline this word. Sent over and over and over again because this is what happens when we start moving towards sin. We send into motion things that we cannot stop. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from the uncleanliness, and then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent. Now there's some other scenting going on. Word to David saying, I am pregnant. Now what would you do if you were the king? Now, one idea would be to say, well, I don't know where that's from. Yeah, who, who you been sleeping with, right? He's the king. He can get away with that. Except for everybody knows that Bathsheba is not only beautiful, but she's a person of integrity. Everybody knows that that's not going to happen. That's why this doesn't work for David. So he can't do that. So he's got to come up with a different plan. He's got to figure out, how do I make this happen? How do I fix this? And so look what happens here. Catch this, all right? So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Job, Joab was, was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. You know, small talk. Can you imagine being Uriah? Okay, King, yes. Yeah, we're doing good. We're winning. Why, why, why are you asking? Why did you not ask Joab? Why are you asking me? So then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house, wash your feet. Okay. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. I, 
I'm sorry, I'm visual, right? Here's the right. He's totally like, totally confused about, okay, and he starts going, and, and all of a sudden he, he, he hears noise behind him, and he looks behind him, and he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, this, this train of food and, and stuff is, what's happening here? It says here in verse 9, but Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants. Not just so you, this is not saying that he slept with the master's servants. He just slept outside where the master's servants were sleeping. Just don't want you to get the wrong impression here. <laughs> Remember the first time I read this, I was going, man, what a bummer, right? No, but yeah. That's not what it says. And it says, and he did not go down to his house. But this was David, the king, who said, you got to go down to the house. And when David was told, Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? I mean, any other soldier would love to be with his wife, especially if your wife was Bathsheba. I mean, give me a break. What are you doing? Why aren't you with her? What is going on here? And listen to what Uriah says. Uriah said to David, the ark, the presence of God, and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I Go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife. As surely as you live, who should be down there, by the way, I will not do such a thing. Can you imagine what a powerful slap that was in David's eyes? I mean, think about it. I mean, God is trying to jolt David, before he does anything else, that's stupid. So then David said to him, stay here one more night, or one more day, and then tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him, what? Drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master servants, he did not go home. I was thinking. Isn't it amazing that the Holy Spirit can even penetrate a drunken man who does not want to be drunk but wants to follow God? Think about that. I was drunk. It's no excuse if you're following Jesus. And you can use whatever one you want in there. Are you following what I'm saying here, man? This guy is drunk, but he still will not do it. He's, he's totally inebriated, but he will not allow himself. To dishonor his fellow soldiers. In the morning, verse 14, it says, David wrote a letter to Joab and what? Sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Hmm. So Uriah gets to bring to Joab, the captain, his own death sentence. And he doesn't even know it. He doesn't even open that note. Why not? Because this is from the king, and Uriah has integrity. And of course, he has no clue, no idea whatsoever that this is what David has planned until the battle and he's promoted to the front lines. 
or demoted. And then he sees men going back, and the inevitable happens. And he gets killed, not only him, but other casualties. Unfortunate, right? In war, it happens. And Job sends a messenger to David and says to David, listen, here's what happened. Please don't be angry. And then in verse 22 of that same chapter, follow with me. It says, the messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Job had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city. And then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men, some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David told the messenger, saying this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as any other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You think? David's thinking, what a great plan. Boy, did I get away with that. I mean, you know, Uriah is dead and... I'm just going to be the, the generous, loving king that takes on this poor woman. So because she's, she's pregnant, you know, Uriah went and got her pregnant, you know, and now she's all alone. And Okay, so he looks a little like Uncle David, but it's, let's be honest, it's Uriah's son, right? I'll, I'll help raise this kid. You know what I'm talking about, right? But here's what happens. Please know this. I don't care how much you think you get away with sin, something gnaws at you. And it begins to erode the insides of you. And you begin to feel that something is wrong, something is missing. And David would go to his prayers and he would suddenly feel like God's not listening. And David would experience these, these moments of, of total loneliness, and he couldn't figure out why, except for he knew deep down inside why. Don't you? Months go by. Months go by. And David is thinking, okay, well, listen, at least I was able to quiet the situation. At least I was able to save some face. And I'll get over this as time goes by. I'll get over these feelings. I'll figure this out. God loves me. He'll figure it out. I, I don't know what's going on here, but something, something is wrong. But, but I'm just at least... At the, can I tell you something? In a world where you have servants, the walls are lazy. The walls talk. And he thought nobody knew. But guess what? Everybody knew. Just that nobody wanted to say something. Now... It's a dangerous mission to be a prophet, just by itself. And it's a dangerous mission to be a prophet to preach to a king. There's some kings that I wish prophets would preach to these days. <laughs> it's even more dangerous to preach to a king who is nursing a guilty conscience. And it is most dangerous to preach to a king with a guilty conscience who has already murdered a man to cover up his sin. This was Nathan's job. But can I just say something to you right now? 
once in a blue moon, God loves you enough to send Nathan. And the worst thing you could do is disregard Nathan. Are you following what I'm saying to you? Once in a while, God sends you a prophet. And he may not dress like a prophet or look like a prophet. She may not at all in any way, shape, or form be what you think a prophet should be. But I tell you what, he or she will tell you the things that you need to hear, that God wants to tell you. And if you don't listen. Now, Nathan was very wise. And so he does what every great wise prophet would do. He's very careful. Catch chapter 12, verse 1. Once David has done all the sending, guess who starts sending? The Lord sent Nathan. I love that. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, let me tell you a story. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and one and the other poor, and the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb, and he had bought this lamb. He raised it and, and grew up with him, and his children had shared its food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. I have a dog like that. Oh, yeah. Middle of the night, she sneaks up on the bed. I turn around thinking I'm going to hug Nancy, and it's Lucy. Oh, you're laughing, but some of you have dogs like that, too. You just won't admit it. Some of you have actually kissed your dog thinking it was your spouse. Now, a traveler, Nathan continues the story, came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep. He was rich. One of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he says, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. In other words, instead of killing one of his, his sheep, he takes the one sheep, the one that this poor man had, and, and kills it, and that's what he eats. And David is angry. Listen to what it says. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. See, here's what happens when we blow it, when we sin. One of the first things that happens when we sin is we must cover up that sin by being holier than thou. You know what I'm talking about? How do I cover up this sin? I cover up this sin by feeling better because I would never do that. I mean, that is just as low as you can get. Nathan must have looked very incredulous at that point. And David says he must pay for the lamb four times because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then David says to Dave, uh, Nathan says to David, I love this. Don't you miss this. Nathan is like, are you that stupid? He's not saying that, but he's thinking that. And he says, let me, let me draw you a picture here, buddy. You are the man. Wow. You are the man. Can you, can you imagine any more piercing words? For David to hear. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? Now, what happens next is really weird to me. Nathan says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I give you all Israel and Judah. And if it had not been in too little, if that had been too little, I would have given you more. I mean, after all I've done for you, David, 
Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? And then he says, in case you think I don't know, let me tell you what you did. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites of all people. And then he says these words. The prophet says these words. And they're powerful, and don't you miss it. He says, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give you them to the one who is closest to you. Wow. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did this in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Think about this for a moment. He doesn't say anything, by the way, and by the way, this is going to be written in a book that everybody's going to read for the next thousands of years, which is even worse, right? But everybody's going to know you see, let me just tell you something right now. Whatever we do in secret, sooner or later comes out. It just happens, man. Whatever we do in secret, whatever we do sooner or later ends up echoing back to us. What we reap, we, we sow. What we sow, we reap. It's the way it is. Now, what happens next is pretty awesome. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Time out. Time out. I'm sorry. Play this back for me. You just committed adultery, killed a man to cover up that adultery. You're told what's going to happen to you, and then you just go, oh, I've sinned against the Lord. And God says, it's cool, I forgive you. Are you kidding me? Like, is there like no time of repentance here? No guilt of feelings I eat a little extra ice cream, and I'm like out of it for a couple of days, you know, worried to death about what I just did. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, are you, are you serious? You just killed the guy, David. You know what I mean? Like, what's going on here? But what we don't know within this story is that actually this, this was a longer period of time. Actually, what happens here is that David breaks out into a song. He is so broken by what just happened. In fact, the words, you are the man were the greatest words David ever heard. You want to know why? Because for all those months, David thought, God has left me. God does not love me. God has forgotten me. But the fact that God would send Nathan to him, David realized, God must still love me. Love me enough to reprimand me. Love me enough to, 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 to let me know. Love me enough to forgive me, God. The moment the words came out, you are the man, this was the, the sweetest, most wonderful words David ever heard in his life. Now, like any sin, I'm sure you've heard this anal analogy before, you know, like a nail, you can t put the nail and you take out the nail, that's great, the sin is forgiven, but the hole is still there. And the hole was still there. And the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear about that hole and what happened. But God forgave David. Do you believe that? Now, let me tell you the song that he broke out into because this is really amazing. Here's what we need to know, and that is that there is nothing that we can ever do. Listen to me. There is nothing we could ever do to make God love us less. Do you believe that? Just like there is nothing you could ever do to make God love you more. God loves you. It's just who he is. He can't help himself. 
So David breaks out into this song. It's recorded in Psalm 51. In fact, my Bible actually says, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. See that? So it's right there. That's what he does. He breaks out into a song. It's not as quick as, oh, I have sinned. Okay, I forgive you. No, it's not like that. There's a whole mo moment here that we're missing. And this is what he says in the song. Don't you miss this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Do you see what he's saying? For I know my transgressions. This is all-out confession. I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever always before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Because he knows that, yes, he sinned against Bathsheba, and yes, he sinned against Uriah, but ultimately who he sinned against in the grand scope of things, in, in, in this big picture, is that God was on trial. And here is a man after God's own heart who has just now totally told the universe that God's not strong enough to keep you from sin. God's not strong enough. Because he did not take advantage of that space between stimulus and response. And he realizes that it's him and that he sinned against God in the universe. And he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you are judged. Surely I was a sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the innermost plus. And then he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be what? Whiter than snow. I was walking by my, my house a couple weeks ago, and I came across this sign. Let's see if I can get it up there fast enough here. Free whitening for life. I thought, now that is a deal. But the only one that can give us free whitening for life is Jesus Christ. During Pastor Appreciation Week, one of my members here, and I won't say who, gave us pastors a gift. I have it here. Put the picture up. Oh, yeah. It says, wash away your sins. Air freshener. For liars, cheaters, and wrongdoers, approved from above, scented salvation, <laughs> quick relief, direction for use, determine strength of sin, beg for mercy, remove cap, point pump towards transgression, missed as required. And emerge free from sin, ready to do it again. Wouldn't that be cool if this really came in a bottle? Wouldn't that be awesome, right? Somebody, somebody cuts you off. You just run up against them and you just start going, oh yeah, okay, come on, man. All right, I'm forgiving you now, buddy. You're clean, right? Right? You get a phone call from somebody and you're like, oh yeah, no problem, man. I got you, man. You're at the board meeting. Oh yeah. You don't even have to spray. You just take it out and put it on the, on the table. You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, you better not say anything, man. I got, the, I got this. I'm ready to go. Wouldn't that be awesome? But only Jesus can make us white as snow. Only Jesus can wash away our sins. And David knew that. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And then he says these words. Do not forget this. Let me hear joy and gladness, because I haven't heard joy and gladness in so long. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. See, some of you guys are wondering why your witnessing is not effective. It is because you haven't prayed this prayer. You haven't said, God, restore to me the joy, because it is that joy that, can, that just kind of, you can't help it. People see it, and they go, man, I need God in my life. I need God in my life. At one point, weakened by wounds in his head, hands and feet. The pilgrim staggered backwards. Immediately, the scaly beast seized the chance to come to grips with his opponent. A fearful wrestling match ensued at last. Apollyon managed to bring Christian crashing to the ground with such force that the two-edged sword flew out of his hand. And then sensing victory, Apollyon closed in for the kill. But... Just as the fiend raised his hand to deliver a final fatal blow, Christian regained his sword and thrust it forcefully upward, shouting, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And taken by surprise, the evil beast stumbled backward, and his adversary followed up his advantages by attacking with renewed vigor, shouting in triumph. In all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. And when the final outcome was inevitable, the defeated arch enemy of God spread his wings and he flew away. Do you believe that? Listen to me. God is there to help you in every possible way. I don't know what brokenness you have. I know you are hurting. I know you're broken inside. I know there are some people here that are overwhelmed by the weight of their sin. But Jesus says, come to the altar. Come to me. Throw this stuff away because it doesn't work. But I will make you clean. I will save you. No matter how many nails I've pulled out, no matter how many holes you have to deal with, I'm there no matter what. No matter how many times you have to hear the words, you're the man or you're the woman, I'm here because I love you. And where sin abounds, grace does that much more abundantly.